there's always been a lot of interest in the connections between art and science. And I felt looking at that literature that often these connections were between art and technology or technique and, and not really a connection at a very fundamental level that joins the scientific process and the creative process. You're listening to the Beyond Disciplines podcast, produced by the Faculty of Arts and Science at Concordia University in Montreal. The Beyond Disciplines podcast is a conversation series that brings scholars together across different fields of knowledge. I'm Aaron Lakoff. And I'm Simone Lucas. Beyond Disciplines. Mix it up, experiment boldly, and go beyond. Where do academic researchers carry out their work? A geographer wades through a river to measure the strength of its current. A historian spends weeks in an archive squinting at fading manuscripts. A chemist heats a substance to measure its boiling point. Researchers also spend time outside of these traditional spaces. The geographer wanders through museums to gaze at landscape paintings. The chemist isolates himself in an art studio to construct intricate sculptures. The historian finds a mundane artifact and becomes immersed in its textures and engravings. Many researchers leave their disciplinary homes to observe and create art. Art is not just a hobby for them. Art plays an integral role in academic investigation. On this episode of Beyond Disciplines, we speak to three individuals who show us the many roles that art can play in academic research. We begin by speaking with Carly Daniel Hughes. She shows us all there is to learn from a women's toiletry box. Stephen Kawai explains how he found a common language between his life as a chemist and as a sculptor. Finally, we hear from Rebecca Duclos, the Dean of the Faculty of Fine Arts. She tells us about her search into the mind of an artist. Stay with us. Coins, clothes, and toiletries. What can these objects say about the society they came from? And why would a feminist historian pay particular attention to these mundane artifacts? Carly Daniel Hughes studies Christian women in antiquity by turning to the objects they relied on. I'm Carly Daniel Hughes. I'm an associate professor of uh, religion um, in the Department of Religion and Cultures at Concordia. And my expertise is really early Christian history um, in the Roman period. And I also do a lot of work on gender and sexuality um, in religious studies more generally. And one of your approaches to studying women's history, from what I understand, is looking at artistic objects as an avenue to understanding history. Could you tell us what drew you to this approach? Sure. Um, so for my dissertation and my first book, I wrote on a early Christian writer who lived in the second, uh, late second, early third century. His name is Tertullian of Carthage. So he's writing in Rome and North Africa. And he was a prolific writer and he wrote all of these heady theological treatises. And he wrote all of these treatises on clothing. And no scholars really knew what to do with it. So a lot of them sort of attribute it to like um, some kind of aberrant thing in his thinking, some weird um, interest that he had. And I was just kind of th thought that was an opportunity to think a little bit more deeply about the significance of dress and clothing in like, you know, I, I knew a little bit about fashion history. So I thought I just will dig in. 
And the more I got looking at his, his work, the more I realized that um, he was pretty, uh, he exaggerated, he was hyperbolic, but that he knew something about clothing in the ancient world, and he was using it, and he was investing it with all this symbolic meaning. And I sort of started to think, well, what did other people think about clothing and jewelry in the ancient world? So I, I dug in, and I found out that a lot of, um, this is a place, clothing, is a place where we can find um, artifacts that tell us something about sort of marginalized history. So who's manufacturing the clothing? Who's making it? Who's dyeing it? Who's selling it? Who's inheriting it? A lot of times that's you know slaves or elite women are not really marginal, but they're marginal in terms of the textual evidence that we have. They don't, we don't have anything that they've written. Um, so this is a record. And women took their clothing very, very seriously. It was a, a great badge of honor, so they would display it in funerary portraiture. They would, uh, you know, people would leave it to family members, especially jewelry. And so I started looking into these artifacts. Grave goods is what I started with, things that people were buried with. Um, and then I looked at artistic monuments, and I found that putting those sources in conversation with the written material of Tertullian gave us a much fuller and much more complicated story about what it meant to be a part of a Christian assembly in you know, Roman Carthage in the third century that was just way more interesting than what you might get if you just read what Tertullian wants to tell you about it. So one of the artifacts you've been looking at is a woman's toiletry box. Yeah, yeah. Could you tell us who this box belonged to and describe it for the listeners? Sure. So, um, I, and I'm sorry, I don't know the exact dimensions off the top of my head. Um, but, you know, you could hold it in your hand, like one person could carry it, you know, maybe the size of like a large shoebox. Um, and it belonged to a woman named Projecta, we think, and that's because it was inscribed with her name um, and that she married a man named Secundus. Maybe that Secundus gave it to her as a wedding gift, or it could have been that her mother or someone else gave it to her as a wedding gift. And the theory is that this would have held, you know, perfume, makeup, the kinds of things that one would want to take to the baths, because this is where the Roman you know, arts of beautification happened in the baths, and probably would be carried there um, by her slaves. Um, the reason that the, the, the casket is interesting, well, first of all, it's one of the finest pieces of like silver work that's extant that we actually have. Um, it's not the most glamorous. It might have been mass produced even. It seems that it was made from a mold, which implies there were other versions of this. But she was a Christian woman. There are Christian symbols or at least it, was, it belonged to a Christian woman. And that really cuts against what all of the Christian literature of this period is telling us about Christian women, namely that you know, asceticism is on the rise, people are not getting married, or they're, they're rejecting marriage, and they're rejecting adornment and beautification. We have all these dramatic stories. There's this very famous virgin named Demetrius. Um, St. Augustine writes to her, St. Jerome writes to her, St. Uh, Pelagius, who actually becomes a heretic, writes to this woman. And when she vows virginity, she throws away all of her clothes. This is a statement. You know, I'm a Christian now. I don't wear any of these things. So when you put somebody like Demetrius in conversation with somebody like Projecta, you realize not everybody thought, you know, becoming a Christian or joining a Christ assembly meant, like, giving up all these traditional Roman practices. Um, also, there's, like, a really sexy Venus on this thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and a scantily clad image of Venus, you know, the icon of eroticism and beauty. And the way that the piece is designed, one visually is to align up the woman who's presumably projector, or at least an image of the woman who would own the casket, um, with this Venus figure. So it's a very 
sort of rich and complicated story that it tells, and I, and I just think that that um, is a good example of how we have to look to other things besides literary sources if we want to do, you know, rich feminist historiography. You call yourself a feminist historian or yeah. historiographer. Could you talk about how bringing artifacts and objects is a part of your feminist praxis? Um, well, there are a couple parts to that that, that are really uh, integral to, to my thinking about being a feminist historiographer. One is just the very fact of, you know, what I talked about before, the fact that, you know, the periods I study, with very few exceptions, there's a couple of female poets, there's maybe a martyr text that's written by a woman. We don't have any extant literary remains written by anybody else but elite properties, <laughs> like holding men. So if we want to look at anybody else's perspective, we've, we're going to have to get outside of the text. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is there's always been an equation, especially in, in, in the sort of the Western tradition, of um, equating the feminine with the material and matter. So that's already there. So I kind of like to explore that link um, and bring in the material culture and make it more complicated for people um, and suggest that matter just doesn't, like, just sort of isn't there. Like temples, friezes, and inscriptions, artifacts, objects, you know, are, are agents. They make arguments, they're rhetorical, um, they're symbolically powerful. They're not just sort of blank canvases that people project things on. They like are also making, you know, projecting things on there. The people who are using them, handling them. So to me, that's just like, and it's not an obvious kind of link for to feminism. But but in my own teaching, and increasingly, the more I do this work, the more I think that that feels right. Um, I also this is and this is just a recent thing. I also think that environments impact us in really profound ways. Our own environment, noises, sounds, sensorial stuff. I've worked a lot on the body. So why should it be any different in antiquity or any other period I study? So trying to just get students tuned into something else besides kind of like rational um, you know, speech, but just thinking about like embodied spaces and sounds and noises and smells and our proximity to other people. Um, material artifacts, material culture allows you to kind of make that point really richly. And then I think, I think what happens is people start thinking differently about their environment, you know, the, the spaces that they're inhabiting. Artistic objects are unique gateways to understanding the past. Engravings, images, and materials tell unique stories about those who lived at the margins of society. The physicality of artifacts convey meanings that cannot be transmitted through language alone. What do molecules and sculptures have in common? Stephen Kawai spent many years working as a chemist. Today, he dedicates most of his time to making art. But for him, those two worlds aren't so far apart. Stephen explains how molecules and mobiles collide. My name is Stephen Kawai, and um, I am a chemist, and perhaps to a lesser degree a biochemist, and I've been a researcher in both the private sector, and I've taught here at Concordia. I've also been a visual artist for most of my life, so I kind of try to balance these two uh, sides of my existence here. First, we'll start uh, with your work as an artist. You started making 
mobiles when you were in SAGEP. Can you tell us what drew you to mobile making? Uh, way back, I used to go to an art school that was run in the Museum of Fine Arts that's uh, long uh, defunct. And uh, during one of the um, outings we had, there was a retrospective of an artist named George Rickey, who's a fairly well-known American kinetic artist, and he does very kind of simple minimalist mobiles, or did, and uh, these just blew me away. And that's what led me to start tinkering and figuring out how to make mobiles. Uh, I eventually found, obviously, the work of Alexander Calder, and, and through him and Ricky, it basically taught me the basic physics of how to make them. And over decades now, I've been sort of trying to push the mobile medium and trying to make it different from these artists' works and sort of like put my own sort of uh, style and, and uh, materials into them. So to give the listeners an idea of the work that you do, could you describe one of your favorite mobiles visually? Oh, that's a tough one because uh, they're so varied. My, my philosophy is that if you can hang it, you can put it into a mobile. So um, I suppose uh, perhaps my favorite sort of category of mobiles are ones that are very intricate. I often use um, spherical uh, beads made out of semi-precious stones, quartz, hematite, materials like that. And I try to cluster them very densely. And, and so it's very... It's a combination of um, very mechanical, but at the same time very organic in that uh, the sizes of the uh, spheres are different and the way they're laid out, uh, I suppose, evokes more something organic and biological as opposed to a mechanical. And mobiles are often seen as very mechanical things. Um, I think a big difference between my mobiles and most other people's mobiles is that most people tend to make abstract pieces that are very much like Calder's, very brightly colored sort of um, ovals and, and rounded shapes, whereas I tend to focus on the object, natural objects primarily, whether they be uh, stones, shells, uh, parts of dried plants, virtually anything that uh, one finds in nature. So that's a good segue to talk about your work as a scientist. <laughs> um, so you work you worked or work as a chemist as well, and from what I understand, part of this work was to make molecules. So for those of us who aren't chemists, <laughs> could you tell us in very simple terms what is a molecule and how do you go about making one? Um, yeah, I'm primarily an organic chemist, and our, our organic chemists... Um, we spend a lot of time making molecules, whether it's just for the sake of making them, the challenge, or uh, to make a particular molecule to carry out further studies on. So regardless what type of sort of subfield in, in organic chemistry or biological chemistry that uh, you're, you are working in, it, a lot of the work amounts to synthesizing the molecules. And, and this basically is a sort of a process of construction where you just start from a simple molecule and you just keep adding things to it. It's hard to summarize very, very quickly, but it's almost like Lego in the lab using, you know, chemical reactions to build up what you're trying to make until you attain that molecule. And how did you come to see some of the similarities between mole molecules and mobiles? Um, yeah, that was a bit of an epiphany because I had been making mobiles for a very long time and uh, never really made the connection uh, until uh, I was actually asked about how one plans out m uh, making mobiles. And 
in thinking about this, I realized that this planning procedure is very similar to sort of like the mental planning you do when you're, you're trying to design a way of synthesizing a specific molecule. So I think the similarities or the connections between these two activities is simply this, this looking at what you want or imagining what you want to make and deconstructing it, right? And this applies equally to mobiles and molecules. And then once you feel you have a, a, um, an adequate way of doing this, then you just go backwards and you take the smaller pieces and you build it up into either the mobile or the molecule. The, I suppose in terms of uh, a lot of the research I carried out in the past, another thing perhaps which I didn't mention a lot in the talk was that mobiles behave a lot like molecules. And I think when I made this connection between molecules and mobiles, that's when it really kind of struck me as well that how mobiles move, right? Because by definition, they're things that are associated with motion. They always sort of settle back into the same shape. And artistically, that's important because it's often how the piece is hanging statically is what I'm trying to present. And the motion is just sort of like another aspect to it. You can knock it and it goes, does all kinds of strange movements and then it always settles down into the same sort of shape. And uh, molecules actually behave the same way. They have a preferred, a lot of them are kind of floppy entities, right? But if you just let them be, they eventually assume a shape that's the most stable. It's called the most stable conformation. And uh, in, I, did, I spent uh, quite a few years in the pharmaceutical industry, and that's where, um, in, in collaboration with other uh, scientists in the company, um, a lot of the research that interested me was to study the motions of molecules and how they settle into this preferred shape. And this, in the context of uh, the pharmaceutical industry, is very important in designing drugs and and uh, well, well, designing drugs. <laughs> so this realization about the connection between molecules and mobiles, was that something that happened while you were making molecules or while you were making mobiles? Uh, well, it's actually while I was doing both because these two practices of mine were kind of concurrent for a very, very long time. So uh, I was actually still working as a chemist and on the side being very active, uh, uh, creating mobile art pieces that uh, this sort of connection sort of was made. And, and I, since I had some time on my hands, I decided to write an article uh, uh, describing this. Also because, you know, there's, a, there's always been a lot of interest in the connections between art and science. And I felt looking at that literature that often these connections were between art and technology or technique and, and not really, you know, a connection at a very fundamental level that joins the scientific process and the, you know, the, the, the creative process. Stephen's mobiles are a complex equilibrium. Crystals, driftwood, and stones hang in a delicate balance. Meanwhile, chemists orchestrate hundreds of molecular bonds between atoms. In molecules as in mobiles, disparate elements dance around points of suspension. What goes on in the minds of artists? Where do they find their inspiration? How does an initial idea materialize into a final piece? Dean Rebecca Duclos wanted to understand the artistic mind. She decided to get up close and observe an artist at work. 
So my name is Rebecca Duclos, and I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Fine Art, and I'm also a faculty member in Art History. At the Beyond Disciplines event, you shared that you've been pondering a lot on what is, what goes on in the mind of the artist. Can you tell me what brought you to this question? I think, um, well, particularly with the Beyond Disciplines event and, and more generally, um, I'm often asked at the university to talk about creativity, <laughs> in quotation marks. And um, to be honest, creativity is, it's, it's one of those words that's been used so often now that it's almost been evacuated of meaning. So I often try to find ways to talk about creative practice without using the word. <laughs> and it's a challenge because it, in some ways, um, it's a very, uh, the, the, the way of approaching the world um, in, a, in a very you know, non-linear, um, intuitive, um, performative way uh, is, is very complex and nuanced. And so it's easy for us to fall into using language like creativity because it seems to sort of grab all of that together and, and amorphously describe it as something that feels vaguely artistic. <laughs> so when I was trying to talk about the artist's mind there were two things that, that were at work for me. The first is uh, to raise again the, the historic fascination that society has always held with practitioners. Um, and to, you know, to try to understand how it is that, I guess you could call it genius, arrives within, within, the, within arts and design and performance. And we talk about genius in all the other disciplines, of course. but. Um, there's something, let's say, about you know astrophysics, where you can see the genius because the equation is perfect at the end. And I think for for artists, it's it's more it's more difficult to talk about the genius that happens within the process of engagement because it often happens behind closed doors. Um, it's oftentimes very durationally and temporally long. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's no accident that we've we've long tried to figure out you know, how, how a dancer uh, works, how they understand the body, um, you know, how a painter comes to, to produce that work. And so the, the, the artist's mind um, is, is fascinating for those reasons that um, we're all trying to understand how new knowledge is made um, within ways that are somewhat mysterious to the rest of the world. So that was part of it, was looking sort of you know, in a micro-historical way about the artist's mind. The second part of it is was really to focus in on, you know, three of the many terms that I could have brought up, but that those were, uh, you know, looking at intuition, improvisation, and iteration. And so in some ways these are methods, but they're, they're methods that, that uh, I think characterize the way that many creative practitioners work. Uh, and each of those can have its own description, and I'm happy to, to talk about that. But it was a way for me in the Beyond Disciplines event to um, highlight how the artistic mind approaches a problem. And that was to distinguish it from what other panelists really beautifully said, which was the role of art in research. And, and we can talk about how art helps us to visualize research. We can talk about how art is a way to express or communicate research. And so I was trying to, to even look at something prior to that to say that the artistic mind uh, is a particular mind that researches in a particular way. <laughs> Thank you.
So part of your attempt to demystify this creative mind or artistic process was to observe the process of your partner, David Ross. Right. Could you tell us why you chose to do this and also what you observed yeah. in this process? Well, I think it's, it's, it's part of what I was saying that um, to, to sort of get a glimpse into the creative mind, um, you have to spend time. <laughs> you have to spend time with it, <laughs> and I'm lucky that my 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 husband is an artist, and uh, I you know I, we've known each other for 15 or more years, and I've watched him work on numerous projects in uh, across a number of fields and and through a, num a variety of media. He mostly makes films right now, but he's also engaged in, in very um, long-term photography projects. He's trained as an architect, which is also very interesting because the architectural mind looking at artistic problems. Um, and so f for me to, to take the risk, I guess you could say, of um, bringing in a personal story and, and trying to use him as a, an example, um, it was a way for me to look at these three terms of, of uh, intuition, improvisation, iteration. And so m maybe now on the podcast, I can, I can take a little bit more time to, to speak about those three terms specifically in how I see them play out in David's practice. So one thing that really, I would say, characterizes the, the approach to research that creative practitioners engage is, is this notion, notion of intuition. And there's a bit of demystifying around intuition that we need to do, because I think many people think, oh, you know, you just kind of have a feel for things. But <clears throat> one has a feel for things because you have a base of knowledge, and you have a deep interest, and you have an openness. So all of those things have to be in place in order for an intuitive moment to not only strike, but to be recognized by the researcher. Um, so it's kind of like a frisson or synchronicity. I mean. In, again, language is language is complicated in the arts because um, it uh, we you know we use words like chance or accident and it sounds so unintentional, but it it actually is um, I think across many fields the the key moment when bam an idea strikes you and and you're off, and it's a it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to be able to pursue intuitive moments. And I say that because I see researchers across the university, especially in engineering and the sciences, that um, you know, they don't always get to privilege that intuitive moment because they're, they're, they're in the flow and they're, they're in a trajectory that they have to keep following. So um, th this idea of intuition um, uh, being a kind of key um, driver is really important. The second uh, I, uh, term, improvisation, um, so many of the projects that David has engaged in um, have an improvisational aspect, particularly around building, building the teams and building the, the equipment that he needs to en enact a project. And I'll give, you, I'll give you three examples. So the one that I talked about at Beyond Disciplines was a, a, a kind of interesting, complicated uh, photographic project where David needed to get um, using a 4 by 5 camera, very, very precise um, images up close of uh, a brightly painted uh, art shipping crates. <laughs> um, and so he actually needed to adapt a camera that would allow him to get the images that he needed to get. So he actually had to work with a machinist and 
and all of his knowledge that he'd brought from architecture school to bear on um, finding microscopic lenses. So he had beautiful Zeiss lenses that he was actually sort of strapping on to this 4x5 camera. Um, then he had to figure out uh, a kind of a mechanism that would allow him to move by like micrometers of, of distance uh, away and towards the crate. So all to say, it was a completely improvised piece of equipment, and, and um, many artists do this. They also improvise in terms of the group of people that they bring around them for any one project. So, you know, uh, artists are constantly sourcing out new venues, new materials, new processes, new techniques, new experts that can help them build this or make that. Or um, So uh, another example of that would be, again, it was with a camera. Um, David was needing to um, ad adapt a film camera. In this case, it was 35. Uh, and it was a, he was shooting a film of uh, land surveyors, student land surveyors. And he wanted to try to replicate what it looks like for a surveyor to look through the theodolite. And if you've ever seen one or seen people using surveying equipment, it's that, you know, that kind of squarish thing that they're looking through all the time and somebody else is 20 feet away, or, you know, 30 meters away holding a stick. And you think, what the heck are they doing? If you look through one of those machines, it has these little crosshairs that are used for focusing and I'm adjusting distance, and mo most of them are laser um, uh, or operated now. But nevertheless, Dave wanted to try to get this this um, this viewpoint. So he uh, again had to adapt a theodolite <laughs> um, to work with a digital camera, um, and he so he built the, the essentially a conjoined camera that um, we nicknamed the Theodocam. <laughs> and this was uh, what allowed him to get the, the shots that you see in the film. So I won't go much more into that, but these improvisational practices um, definitely in the visual arts uh, oftentimes surround um, the, the, the making of, a, of technology uh, and equipment. Finally, iteration. Uh, the simplest thing to say about this is, uh, again, looking at David, artists are probably the most tenacious people I know. They never give up. And sometimes it will take them years to get the shot that they need, the, the choreographic excellence that they're after, um, access to places that they're, that they're trying to get, the, the, the pigment that they've been searching for. So not only are they sort of iterative in their continuous engagement with trying to find the materials that they need to, to perform their piece, their work, but they also will try and try and try again um, not only to get it right, but um, to to use that process of iteration to discover new things that they might not have imagined would would happen. Um, so this is why I think again, creative practitioners are much more comfortable with failure than many other practitioners um, or many other academics, and that goes for research. So part of the research mentality for artists is that you will fail. And, and you will you will fail better next time, <laughs> and you will keep doing this. And again, if that's acceptable, um, that's encouraged. Um, so I think that artists do have a different uh, they they have a different feeling about about iteration. And so the iterative process is not necessarily to get the same exact results, which it often is in, in the sciences. It's to get different results every time until you actually find the one that feels right or is is what you were hoping for. Rebecca showed us that art is its own form of research. Creativity may be a mysterious force, 
but making art encompasses distinct stages of inquiry. Artists are not so different from scientists. They hypothesize, observe, and analyze. They can teach us to incorporate intuition, improvisation, and iteration into our work across the disciplines. Art can play multiple roles in academic research. An artifact can be an entry point to understanding the realities of women who didn't leave written traces. A sculpture can bring scientific concepts like equilibrium to life. And artists can show us new ways of approaching our work. When we challenge the boundaries between art and science, we develop new modes of investigation. We can see our research subjects from new angles, and we can bring a little more intuition and play into our process. Thanks again for listening to the Beyond Disciplines podcast, supported by the Faculty of Arts and Science at Concordia University. This episode was produced by Aaron Lakoff and Simone Lucas in Montreal on unceded Mohawk territory. Thank you to all our guests, Carly Daniel Hughes, Stephen Kawai, and Rebecca Duclos. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. When you're there, leave us a rating and a review it helps other people find this podcast. Questions or comments, email us at beyonddisciplines at gmail.com. See you next time. Thank you.